welcome to week two of Shit Shower Shave. This is Jennifer. Welcome back. First, I would like to give a, we'll call it an apology. Last week's question and answer session got a little rowdy. Say thank you to champagne. So we are going to limit our alcohol intake. We only have one glass this time. But, so I apologize to all moms out there who could tell that we were a little saucy. But this week's guest is Reverend Kimberly from The Table Live. It is another podcast. Go check it out if you've not heard of it. But welcome, Reverend Kimberly. Hello. Thank you for having me. And just for the record, I just wanted to let you know that I do drink of the vine. (laughs) She does indeed drink of the vine. We do have a little bit of rosé. It will not end up like it did last week. Um, But Reverend Kimberly, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, so I do know that you had your child or your son, my nephew, Judah, by the way, everyone, this is my sister. I do know that you had him after 35. So I know there are many moms out there who don't necessarily have women at 30, have women, have children at 35, but you hear about all these risks or you hear about younger women trying to like hurry up and try to conceive or like, oh my God, my biological clock is ticking. How do you feel like having a child affected you and did you feel pressure earlier or younger to have a kid? Well, I did not feel pressure to have a child earlier. I did not want a child before (laughs) I had my child. So I didn't feel pressure. When I got to, you know, the time when I got married, then I did want to hurry up and get pregnant. And I was a little concerned because I felt like it took me a longer time to get pregnant than it would have when I was younger. So it took me about about a year to get Mm -hmm. pregnant retrospectively I don't know that we were trying that hard like we weren't taking temperatures Mm -hmm. and like monitoring I just thought that it would happen and the other thing is if I'm being completely frank like we probably were not always as active as we should have been because I was in my third year of seminary and so a lot of times when you know people are are making babies I would be up writing papers (laughs) so I think that had some impact on it but I don't feel like I felt pressure to have a child before I, before I did. I know that that is an issue for a lot of people, but it just wasn't an issue for me because I wasn't ready. Did you think about possibly like freezing eggs? Cause that's a lot of the thing. Like I know personally somebody that knows that they aren't going to have a kid by 35 cause they're inching up closer to there and decided, Hey, I have the means to go freeze these eggs. And they said it was like a super in-depth process. But did you think about doing that before that time? I don't know that I thought about freezing eggs. I know I did think about what if I have to get a surrogate. So I'll ask you if you would be a surrogate. (laughs) (laughs) I do recall that. But no, I don't think I ever, I may have crossed my mind to think about freezing eggs, but honestly, I'm a little apprehensive about trying too many things Mm -hmm. and call me old fashioned, but I always feel like there's a risk associated with things like that. And it might just be like wives tale superstition but I I think about genetic defects and I think as you get older and that's probably a reason to go ahead and freeze your eggs so that your eggs are younger but I worry about that because I know people who've had tried different things and had children who've had um, birth defects and of course they're still children you still love them but you know I wanted to limit and mitigate any extra issues and as much as I can 
But I will say this, when I was pregnant, I felt a lot of stress mm-hmm. and um, anxiety because once you get pregnant and you're in the hospital and they start saying you're your geriatric pregnancy age <laughs> right. and yeah. you have to take all these tests to monitor your child to see if your child is going to have Down syndrome and see if mm-hmm. your child, like that starts to get scary because then you're like, every time you go have a test, you're like, whoa, mm-hmm. when are the results going to be here? Whoa, is something wrong? So, and definitely going through the whole thing like, okay, let me hurry up and get to week 12. And then after week 12, like, okay, let me hurry up and get to week right. 20. And then you're like, okay, let me hurry up and get to viability. I think that might be an issue for a lot of um, first-time moms. Mm-hmm. But I do know that I definitely felt anxiety around those tests. Yeah, I I felt that, and I wasn't, I think I was like 30 or 31. But, like, those tests in general, because you hear so many things and you're always so nervous. Even with my second, I was like, oh, my goodness, let me, like, this test or with both Preston and Penelope, they had to do the, I had to do get two ultrasounds because with Preston, it was a kidney issue and I didn't want to know his sex. So I was like, well, what is the issue and what's going to happen? And they're like, it's fine. It resolves in 95% of people, but having to get that extra was stressful until I got to that point. So I can, I can't imagine how much more stressful it would be if someone's saying, oh, you have to do all these extra steps. So did you do everything extra that they say that you needed to, or did you try to take the conservative route and say, no, I'm just going to put it in God's hands? I think, well, I have to say, well, the clinic that I went to, I think my clinic was relatively conservative in terms of what they would have you do. So mm-hmm. my clinic was not a fan of amniocentesis because it was invasive. They weren't a fan of that other early test that you can get. Mm-hmm. I forget what it's called, but it's something that you could get like at 10 weeks to, to do any genetic. And there's a slight chance that it could um, harm the baby. They weren't in favor of that. They didn't advocate for that. Right. So they didn't advocate for anything that was invasive. Mm-hmm. And I think part part because of partly because of my age. So they were like, well, you're already at risk for age. You don't want to do anything that's going to put your child Dangerous. more at risk. So anything I did was just blood test. Mm-hmm. So um, it didn't feel invasive at all Mm -hmm. and so I don't feel like it put me at any extra risk okay but I do feel like my clinic played me because (laughs) all this time they kept on telling me oh you're at risk you know older mom blah 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 so then when I got to 40 weeks I was like well come on let this baby come out and they were like why I'm like you know I'm 40 weeks and I'm at advanced maternal age like let my baby come out and they were like how old are you I'm like I'm 38 39 however old it was and they were like nah you're right. <laughs> I'm like, well, wait a minute. Like, how come when it's all these other things, it's oh, advanced right. maternal age, or when I'm trying to get this baby out, you're like, nah, stay in there a little like, bit you're longer. Like, you're not old. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so I felt like that. That wasn't cool. <laughs> right. So the funny thing is, as I was like doing research for this episode, like people, we assume guys can have babies forever. And is the article by? Let me try to find out who was by. It was something um, with the CDC, but it was an article, and I will post this to the website, but it was basically saying, yeah, while guys can have babies forever, after 40, even they have higher risk of complications and autism and stillbirth. So you always think as a female, it's always you. It's always about, like, what your body does and what is going on in your body, but you never think that there's something that they could be having that could affect it. Like, there are some people who have fertility issues, and they're like, it's all my fault, it's my body, and it's not always them. Um, so that was an interesting thing that I found. Um, did you feel like it was harder on your body being older? I don't know because I had never 
been pregnant like that before so I didn't know what to expect Mm -hmm. I mean I felt like it was harder on my body because it was so damn hot in ATL like (laughs) I felt like that was the hardest part because it was hot as hell my feet were swollen towards the end of my pregnancy my husband would make fun of me and call me high blood pressure feet (laughs) and it was like I maintained my weight and then like the last three or four weeks it's like I start gaining weight gaining weight gaining Mm -hmm. weight so I felt like that was a harder part on on my body and I, I don't know if I don't and I, I don't have anything to compare right. it to like oh if I had a baby at 20 and mm-hmm. then have one um in my late 30s so I don't have anything to compare it to but I don't think that it was um it was harder on my body I think the things that you know were harder f- for me is that I had um what do you call that thing that I did like um prolonged breastfeeding or oh yes it's she nursed till two I don't know what the term is, but yes. Um, Extended breastfeeding. So, and I think, so, um, but when we had my son, my husband said he didn't want to have any more children. So I wasn't really worried about having any more children at the time. But I think the fact that I did nurse so long impacted my ability to have children, have another child child. I had one or two because it evidently reduces your rate of fertility. Got you. But I don't regret extended breastfeeding. What made you choose that now that you brought it up? You know, it wasn't so much that I chose it. I went into it saying I'm going to nurse until he's one because um, that's what um, American Pediatric Association recommended. I thought it was funny because I would read World Health Organization. They were like, <laughs> yes, until three and beyond. I'm like, y'all, y'all crazy. This is not the third <laughs> world. And so, but my son was just very, very attached to nursing. and He would not take the bottle even when he would be at his grandmother's house for the whole day, he just wouldn't take Mm -hmm. the bottle. Like I would have to come at lunch and nurse him and he would just wait. And then his grandmother being his grandmother, she would, I would send my milk and she would just spoon feed him the milk. (laughs) So he was like, I'm not taking a bottle. I'm not doing Mm -hmm. it. And like, he probably didn't take a bottle until well over a year. Yeah. Like (laughs) after he was one. So, um, he just didn't, he just would not take it. And I know that people say, and I tried to give it to him in like six weeks, and he was like, nah. And I know people always say, oh, once you give them the bottle, they don't want to nurse anymore. But that just was not my experience. Mm-hmm. But um, so that was part of the reason that we nurse longer. He just wanted to nurse. Like, right. he just wanted to nurse. I mean, even fine. And so at, we got towards 18 months. I'm like, this is kind of ridiculous. <laughs> and his, I remember his babysitter being like, no, a lot of kids nurse until they're like 18 months. We know we slowly weaned, so it wasn't like I was nursing him consistently right. like I was when he was a newborn at 18 months. So and by the time he was two, when I was like, dude, we're not doing this anymore, he was nursing pretty much like twice a day, like in the morning and when he came and right before he went to sleep. It had gotten down before, so like in the morning, right when he came home from school after he had been away from me the whole day and right before he nursed. And then we got down to morning and, and night, and then we got down to no. <laughs> Yeah, I remember wanting to nurse my kids longer and it just became such a hassle because I had to go back to work and I was like, I can't keep up this pumping regimen. So how did you, did you have to pump? Yes, I had to pump and because it would be painful if I didn't pump. And I remember his pediatrician was like, oh, you can just kind of pump once and then just, you know, thug it out basically until you get to see him and, you know, your body will get used to it. But I just couldn't do it because mm-hmm. I was producing so much milk. I mean, I just, I know a lot of, I mean, I guess I was blessed in that regard. I would produce so much milk that I felt like a cow. But 
Um, I mean, we ended up throwing away milk after yeah. we froze the milk for a long time because you can't keep it both for so long. So I ended up throwing away milk. But now my son is still a milkaholic. So I just think <laughs> this just shows that that's just how much he was really drinking. Right. So, um, I mean, now if I, he, he will rather drink milk than eat dinner. So, and that's interesting because I nursed both of I've been nursed Preston and Penelope up until like seven months, but then they went to formula. And now at two, Preston would rather drink milk, I mean, drink water than milk. Like anytime we're at the house drinking something, I'm like, Preston, we want to drink. And he never, ever asked for milk. So I wonder if there is something with like how long you nurse and then how much they want milk later. I don't know that there is a correlation. Mom, y'all can email us and let us know. But it's interesting because I wouldn't have expected that and I wouldn't have thought that because everybody that you know, they're like, give them a whole milk, give them this. At like two, he was like, mm, I'm good on the milk. So I don't know if he just doesn't like the taste of whole milk, but he drank it up until two. So I'm like, I don't know what the deal is, but I'm glad he would prefer water than milk. I mean, than juice because juice is just so much added sugar that is crazy. Well, I think, honestly, I just think with Judah, he just likes milk. Mm-hmm. Like, even when he was going to school, one time he got sick, and I was like, he can't have any milk today when he was two. And his teacher was like, Judah can't have milk. Judah <laughs> loves milk. And it's gross to me because I don't really like milk like that. Right. He just likes milk. And, like, where Preston, he wants water, what blows my mind, because I try to reduce how much milk he has. So I say in the morning time, I say, I'm Judah, what do you want? Do, would you want to ha- do you want juice or milk? milk like and I'm like, who chooses milk <laughs> over, over juice? juice like he always wants milk he just loves it it's weird mm-hmm. to me but he he just loves milk hey he likes the, he likes the milk uh and you did bring up um before that's what i was going to back to you brought up you feel like your prolonged nursing affected your ability to get pregnant later did you want to have another kid or did you try or because the i was going to ask did you have any issues conceiving but coinciding with that did you have any issues conceiving the first time and then have you tried since? Well, what happened was we had, my husband said he didn't want to have any kids, any more kids because he already had two children. Then one day he woke up and was like, let's try to have another baby. And so we tried and we conceived like the first month, which mm-hmm. I was really uh, surprised about because we hadn't been not trying before, right. but this is just, a, that's just a month that we tried. And I had a, a very early miscarriage and then, um, you know, we just went back to life as normal. And then I got pregnant shortly thereafter again. And I went pretty much almost through my first, my entire first trimester. And then I had a miscarriage. So, and I do uh, just think it was because my eggs were old. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't an issue with conceiving, but it was definitely, I think there was an egg quality issue. Mm -hmm. But again, even when I just said, I went to the doctor right before, right when we said we would try and, or no, I went to the doctor because I had, was having a miscarriage and she said, um, no, I went when I had the miscarriage, but I went right before we had one and right before I got pregnant and told them that we were going to try. And she was like, okay, you shouldn't just go ahead and try and see how it goes. But what I said was I wasn't willing to do anything. Mm -hmm. Like I know that there's an option now, like where women will get shots and treatments to stimulate their egg production. And I'm just not willing to do that. Mm -hmm. I think partly because I already have a child. Right. And, and as he gets older, I get more like on the fence about having another one Mm -hmm. because as he gets more independence, it's just, I have more freedom. And so, and I just am not willing to take my body through all of that and Mm -hmm. risk, you know, birth defects and just high risk pregnancy. It's Mm -hmm. just not worth it to me. Right. So it was not something I was willing to do, but 
you know, I think retrospectively, like maybe if I hadn't nursed as long and just, or we just decided that we want to have kids, another child sooner, it may have been a different outcome. I don't know, mm-hmm. but, um, I'll, I'll never know, but I do think that that had something to do with it. And it, with miscarriage, cause I miscarried before I had my first son and I remember being very, it is my fault. It, you know, I felt very guilty about it. Cause I think in that pregnancy, I went 10 weeks. So I was pretty close to being done. And I remember the day that it happened, like I, I, that's a place that I refuse to go back to for anything. And I remember the day that it happened and I was like, something just doesn't feel right. Like, and they were like, no, cause I had like light spotting and they were like, no, it can happen. You, you're probably okay. Da, 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 da. And then it, it happened some more. And I was like, just something's not right. And so I went to the doctor and they were like, well, we don't see a heartbeat, which is apparently very common at 10, 10 and a half, 11 weeks. It's something very common. But I remember, I think it's hard for the doctors to tell you that, especially when it's like, you're not like, bleeding or nothing's going on. But I remember like she looked so somber and she was like, well, I just want to go and make sure and get somebody else. And somebody else came in and confirmed. And I was like, Oh, okay. Well, what are the options? And even in it, it's like a shock because you've mentally prepared yourself for this whole thing. And then now you're like, okay, I have to prepare for something else. And they give you lots of different options of what you can do. And I remember for a long time after being like, this is my fault. And then I started doing a lot of research. And and even she said, she was like, it's so very common. Like, it's one in four. And you don't know that going in. Like, because nobody, when you're at the OB, they're not like, by the way, we know you're pregnant. But just so you know, one in four women have a miscarriage. And I think there's so much of a, what would you call it? It's like a secret. Mm -hmm. Like, when you have miscarriages, it's a stigma that there's something wrong with you. And I think when you start talking to people, like the people that were close to me knew that I was pregnant and I had friends who would be like, do you understand? Like now that you told me like three or four of my other friends have told me like they had the same thing or they're going through the same thing. And I think it is relieving once you hear that you're not alone, mm-hmm. but it's also eye opening. Cause you're like, well, why doesn't anybody talk about this? Like, why does everybody have to be shamed into being into this whole issue by yourself because you wait for you wait for a quarter of your pregnancy or a third to tell anybody so then you're like keeping this big ass secret from the world so then if you have the secret and then you don't have the secret anymore it's like you and your husband are the only people dealing with it um and I think that that's something that a lot of women deal with by themselves especially as you get older because most people are having kids so much older now because they want to do have a career. They want to, they're getting married later. All those, a lot of sacrifices that we as women make. And it just seems like it's so hard to balance all those emotions and feelings. You know, definitely. I think the the first miscarriage I had, it's weird because I feel like, hmm, if I wasn't so in tune with my body, I may not have known I was pregnant because my period was only ended up being like a day late. And so I actually (laughs) had a pregnancy confirmation before my period was even due because I was like something doesn't feel Mm -hmm. right it was definitely a much heavier cycle but um the second time was a little more difficult because I went a longer time period and I was like had so many pregnancy tests because I was Mm -hmm. I was worried about it but I do think that there is something to be said for the stigma and also just the way that people view women because then it's like well why are you so old trying to have a baby you knew that wasn't going to happen or you know she probably wasn't eating right and the thing I love about my husband, he was so funny because the first time it happened, he was like, well, 
you know, I was I had a cold and I was sick, so I probably had like some bad sperm that I gave you. It's probably me. Like he was so willing to take right. the responsibility for it rather than like lay it on me, mm-hmm. which you know I thought was nice. But um, and and that's the other thing I don't think we think about because we think about it as women, how mm-hmm. it feels to us. But it's also a loss to the father. Correct. It's not the same physical thing because even now he's like, okay, I don't want to. We need to make sure. It's not a possibility for you to get pregnant because I don't want you to have to go through that again. Right. But, you know, they have to go through the loss mm-hmm. as well. And those are t- things that you probably don't think about. You don't think it affects your partner as much because you feel like I'm going through this. Even if you go to term, I'm going. My, my body is going through this. And there's so many conversations about, like, the sacrifices that women make and how pregnancy or, mis- or all these things affect us. And there is a whole life that has affected them like even if you go full term and you have a baby like their life changes like it may not be physical but they're dealing with another person in their house or life or their bed they're dealing with (laughs) (laughs) they're dealing with your hormones up and down like there's so many things that men deal with that I think we don't give them credit for um because it's funny I think a lot of men during pregnancy are like, oh, man, I can't get this or I can't get this or I can't have as much sex as I want or I'm having all the sex in the world, like, depending on what your circumstance is. Or she's all, moody. Right. Or she's going to be mad. Like, <laughs> And I'm like, well, they got periods, too. And it's it's hard to remember that in the moment. Be like, you're not big and fat and your feet, feet aren't swollen or you didn't have this painful experience. You're not having to deal with this. And it's hard to think about the other person in the situation sometimes. And I think that sometimes what we as women have to always remember, like we're not the only person in this relationship, in this situation, in this parenting role in life. Like to just today I was coming to record and I was like, Oh, so I'm gonna stay here and put the kids to bed. And he was like, yes. And I was like, I know you don't like to parent. I know you like to pay play with our kids. I understand that. And he was like, well, I'm glad that you know that about me now that you know that. And I was like, wait a minute now, <laughs> you're not just going to be playing, but I think that you have to recognize what your strengths are um, in order to be successful in a relationship. Oh, absolutely. Like I read this article and it said as a man, it's basically you are producing your greatest rival (laughs) (laughs) in your wife's life. That's true. (laughs) So it's like, that's your biggest competition. Like, but you have to love it and and nurture it and take care Mm -hmm. of it. But it's like, this person has come along and taken your wife or your girlfriend or your, you know, significant other's attention, undivided attention, and is now number one. Mm -hmm. And you were, you're relegated to number two, you know? And it's funny because my son is such a mama's boy and like, it's just unabashedly, that's just the way it is. And so we joke and say, oh, he'll, you know, he'll, he'll take Charles. I said, Charles, you're a close second. And Charles like, I'm not a close second. I'm a default. (laughs) It's like, all right, well, my mama's not here, then I guess I'll take you. Right. And that, I mean, we talked about that last week, how everything is always mommy, 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 and nothing is always daddy. Like today, Preston was eating and like Deshae handed him the plate and he was like, thank you, mommy. And Deshae was like, I handed you the plate that mommy gave. Like, <laughs> and so it's, it's interesting how they recognize the role, the gender roles that you play and they play out in their minds because that's their like. That's who I like. That's who I want my things from. So that's all interesting. No, it's funny, though, because you said something the other night that was definitely happened in our household. Like, you, I think you said Preston asked to shave for something. And he was like, okay, wait a minute. And he asked you. Mm-hmm. And he knows that you're going to get it right away. Right. So today, Judah was like, I had gotten him some milk, right, because he's a milkaholic. And he drank his milk. And he was like, I want more milk. 
And I was like cooking or something. I was like, ask your daddy. He said, no, I asked you. And I was like, excuse me? <laughs> right. But Charles was like, right, was literally right beside the refrigerator. Mm-hmm. He was like, no, I'll ask you. But it's so many times. I'm like, ask your dad. Charles was like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. And yep. he was like, no, I want my milk. Like, And he's like, wait a minute. So you're like, you know what? I'm not going to ask you because I'm going to get wait a minute from you. Whereas I know my mama going to get up and get my milk. Exactly. So. And they know that. Like, they know and that's what I've tried to say. Like, I make it, try to make it a point when I get home to be present because I think we get confused and distracted with doing so many other things. So I try to be present, and I've tried to instill that in my house. Like, at, at the table, we don't have any phones or we don't have the TV on or all those things to try to make sure that we're as present as possible because I think all those things go to show what our kids see and how they end up acting. So you mentioned that you breastfed for, you did two years? The second birthday, I was like, we're done. <laughs> and he was crying when we came back from his birthday party. I was like, no, nah, I know. And Charles was like, just, just let him nurse. It's his birthday. Just let him nurse. And so I was like, fine. But after that, I was like, no. And then he was like, mommy, no nurse. No. And the next day, he was like, no nurse, no nurse. And I'm like, no, no nurse, no nurse. <laughs> that is hilarious. You've been torturing that little boy. So how did you deal with, like, middle-of-the-night feedings? It was terrible because... As, as I mentioned, he didn't want to take the bottle. And so what that meant was he would nurse at nighttime because he. Oh, because he didn't take a bottle during drink, the day. So he would make up for it at nighttime. And so I, re- I will never forget the first time he spent the night away from us. So you'd be like excited, like, yeah, I'm going to be free. My baby spent the night with his grandmother. And I woke up like in pain because mm-hmm. I, I was so full and I had to get up and nurse in the middle of the night like twice. And I was like, well, shoot, he might as well be here. Right. So, and I got to the point, I would be so annoyed because I'd be like, please, I don't want to nurse anymore. I don't want to nurse anymore. But, you know, I also co-slept, so that made it a little easier. Mm-hmm. So, um, it was just like, it got to the point, you're just like, all right, go ahead. But Right, you can just roll over. Yeah. It's easy that way. Exactly. So, how long did you go into parenthood knowing that you were going to co-sleep or did it just happen no I absolutely was anti-co-sleeping because I read all the articles about SIDS and how it wasn't good for your children to sleep with you so my plan was not to co-sleep I was doing everything by the book I was swaddling Mm -hmm. put him in the bassinet beside our bed unfortunately what happened with uh Judah is that he suffered from acid reflux Mm mm-hmm and so, and I didn't know what was wrong at first. I was just like, why are you crying all the time? Like, I'd be like, I've done everything. I've nursed you. I've changed you. I've nursed you again. I've burped you. Like, what is wrong with you? Why are mm-hmm. you crying? And so it turned out that he had acid reflux. And it was pretty bad because whatever it was, it was just like a digestive issue. So he would poop like nonstop. Yep. And then he got a diaper rash, I thought, but it was actually yeast. Yeast. So it was like this whole terrible thing. And so actually what ended up happening, so he had a mamaru that you gave him. And so we started sleeping in the mamaru so he could be up, like mm-hmm. sitting up. And of course, when you're nursing, you have to get up first every two hours and then every four yep. hours. So I would just have him in the mamaru. And then when it was time to nurse him, I would do that. And then one time, actually twice, he choked and... That's scary. Right, because he couldn't, because of the acid reflux. Mm-hmm. And so I remember one time he choked, and Charles had to do, like, the little baby Heimlich maneuver on him, and I was, like, dial 911. And Charles was like, this is why he can't sleep by himself. And <laughs> blah, 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 blah. So that's how he started sleeping in the bed with us. And it was basically, like, once he got in the bed, he never got out. So, <laughs> so what I would do, actually, because I was always so nervous, is that I would sleep in the bed propped up on pillows with him, 
like laying on mm-hmm. my chest so that he could um, be propped up. And because I didn't want to roll over right. on him. And then I started reading articles about the benefits of co-sleeping. Like, cause I was, everything was so anti-co-sleeping. But then once he started co-sleeping, I was like, well, how are you supposed to co-sleep? I started reading articles about how to co-sleep, how they have their own blankets, how you're not supposed to put them in the middle mm-hmm. and all these different things. And then I started starting to see that there was a lot of benefits to co-sleeping mm-hmm. that we don't necessarily get because of the mattress industry. So that's interesting. I never thought about it that way, but yeah. Right, and that's what people were saying. They're like, the mattress industry wants your child not to sleep with you. Mm-hmm. But they were like, if you look at any other developing country, everybody co-sleeps. And it's just the way that humans evolved. Like, everybody slept in a cave together. And mm-hmm. that co-sleeping is natural because a child wants to be close to their mom. Like, they're been in their mom's stomach mm-hmm. for, people say nine months, but ten months. It's yes. just a natural thing to do. And I was like, you know, that actually makes sense. Mm-hmm. And it made sense for me, too, because then... When he wasn't sleeping, actually, I was when he wasn't sleeping in the bed with us. He was sleeping in his bassinet. I would keep the light, one a little night light on all the time, mm-hmm. and so we weren't sleeping because I was like, "No, I need to be able to see." Right. My husband like, "This is dumb," and I'm like, "What if something happens?" Because yeah. I was always afraid of falling too sleep too hard, mm-hmm. which so. would never happen. I'm convinced. I've I haven't slept the same since before I got pregnant. Like that is the last time I had very deep sleep. <laughs> yeah, no, that's definitely true. So, but you know, I. I think co-sleeping ended up being the right choice for us. Mm-hmm. And it was honestly my husband's very strong suggestion to bring him in the bed with us because that's how his family was. Mm-hmm. Is he still sleeping with you? Yes. <laughs> He's still sleeping with us. We went through a phase where Charles was like, okay, well, he needs to get out of the bed. And I was like, well, you were the one who brought him in here. Mm-hmm. So you get him out. Right. And so we started putting him in his room, but it was like, I would go, he wouldn't want to go in there. So I would lay in the bed with him and he would go to sleep and he started sleeping in there. But then it was like every night, like two or three o'clock in the morning here, running around and then open the door. Ah! So it was, and then he would come and get in the bed at like three or four o'clock in the morning. Right. So, which always was interesting to me because I was like, I can't believe he got up and ran through the dark house mm-hmm. all by himself and was not afraid, but so it's interesting. I did not close sleep with either. There are definitely distinct sleeping patterns between the two. So Preston slept in our room for 18 months until we moved, which I've mentioned on here before, but he slept in the room with us, not in the bed. Well, let me take that back. In the beginning, I used to be so tired that he would often fall asleep on my chest and it was just so much easier because I would be able to sleep a little bit better and I wouldn't have to like wake up or I could just nurse him until one faithful night. Uh, my husband came upstairs in the middle of the night and, and Preston was in the bed and I was asleep and actually getting rest. And he was like, it's him or me. Like, there's no, like, we're not doing this closely, but he's not sleeping in the bed. And I was like, but he sleeps so much better near me. And he was like, I don't care. <laughs> and that was the only night I was like super angry and upset. And I said, okay, well, every time he gets up, you need to go check on him. And so every time he woke up, he would be deep, deep, deep sleep. And I would push him and wake him up and say, you need to go check on him. And I am happy for it because in, in that night enabled him to get out of our bed. But now it's interesting because he's in his own room. He's been in his two and a half now he's been in his own room for at least a year and he almost every night either cries or gets now he just 
gets up and comes into our room and we're both so tired to kick him out. But I think that there's coming a point where he's going to have to start going back in his room because he gets up about three or four and comes and lays in the bed with either me or he'll come to wherever one of us are and sleep next to us. So I think he's so mentally like the scent and the smell of us is so ingrained in him because he was there for so long versus Penelope. She slept in a room with us, but not the same way for maybe six months. Now she refuses to go to sleep outside of her bed. So like, we'll try to rock her. We'll try to hold her. We'll try to do all the stuff we did with Preston. And she'd be like, I'm up. Like, if you gonna hold me, I'm gonna be awake. Apparently she falls asleep on other people, but not us. So it's interesting the difference in the two of them in their sleep patterns. But like you said, I think co-sleeping is just, it depends on what your situation is. Mine I could have gone either way, except Preston is like the wildest sleeper in the world. Like last night, he kicked Deshae out of the bed. And Deshae was like, I was like, weren't you in the bed? He was like, yeah, until Preston kicked me out. And then I made him get on the floor. Like, it's this battle of wills between two men. Like you said earlier, you're vying for attention of a woman. So it's interesting how the sleep patterns have changed between the two of my kids. And I can definitely see a distinct difference. Like Preston knows that's his room. He knows this is his bed. He doesn't even like sleeping in his bed. He's like, I'll sleep on the floor. Like he'll get a pillow and a blanket and sleep on the floor with his Spider-Man. Or if we're downstairs, he will take his pillow and blanket and bring it and lay it on the bottom step and fall asleep. So we'll get up from watching TV downstairs and we have a toddler sleep laid out on the on the bottom step. And we're like, who does this? Well, you know, but I think about it, it makes sense. Like, because as a small person, mm-hmm. you want to be in close proximity to your parents. Mm-hmm. And to be perfectly honest, I don't feel comfortable when Judah's not in the room. Right. Because then I'm like getting up, looking and make sure mm-hmm. everything's okay. So I'm like, what if the house catches on fire? And I have to run over there and like get them. So, and I've heard of other people who have, like, we had a, a couple that we're friends with. And their son was like five and still sleeping in their room and they were getting pregnant again. And he was like, no, okay. I was like, is KJ still sleeping in the bed? He's like, no, he has his own little bed in our room. <laughs> I mean, that happens. Like we know somebody else who they nursed for two years. They co-slept. She was a stay-at-home mom. Her mom, her daughter never went anywhere. She didn't go to school until this year. Oh, you gotta go to school though. <laughs> <laughs> and she actually has transitioned into her room well. And she sleeps in there, but she gets up and gets in their room early, early in the morning. So I think that there's still always that transition of. Uh, it would be interesting to see how it is with the new baby now. But I, th- I, I agree. I think you want to be close. I mean, even grown people, like, my husband don't want to sleep in the bed without me. He's like, I, I sleep better with you in the bed. Why would it be any different for a kid? So yeah. Actually, I remember I read something that said that. And they were like, well, what? She's going to want to sleep in the bed with you for the rest of your life. And they were like, well, you know what? I want to sleep with people that I love for the rest of my life too. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I just think that we have a stigma placed upon it. And, you know, as it comes to romance, you just got to figure it out. Like that was my next question. Like, how does that affect your intimacy level or your relationship? I mean, I think Charles used to get annoyed by it and now, and he'd be like, that's your boyfriend. Like he would make little comments <laughs> like that. But I, my whole thing is I'm like, you were the one who got him in our bed in the first place right. because I was like going by the book. But you know, I was reading this article and it said somebody was saying, um, 
oh no, how can you be intimate with your child in the bed with you? And the response was, if you can only be intimate in your bed at nighttime, then you have a problem. That's true. So it's like you you figure it out because the thing is, they don't want to do it and they're going to figure out a way to do it mm-hmm. around whether or not the child is in the bed. Yep, I 100% agree. We went to the lake and Judah was in the shower and she... And he was like, come on, come on. I'm like, no, he's right there. He's like, he's like, Judah, stay in the shower until I come and get you. So we're like, okay, we're at the lake in the villa. And the next thing I know, I don't know when he got out of the shower. The next thing I know, he looked, <laughs> we looked over. He's like climbing up on the bed. He said, daddy, get your nasty body off of her. <laughs> I mean, they're the risk you run. Like, so I was like, oh, because my son is obsessed with passing gas. I was like, daddy's trying to pass gas on me. <laughs> And he's like, Daddy, you're nasty. And so Charles was like, I, I, I just took a shower. Like, why do I have to be nasty? He's, he's like, I don't understand this. He's like, why do I have to be nasty? He's like, why did he call you nasty? Why oh, my that God, that's hilarious. That is funny. <laughs> well, he equates it with passing gas now. So with all the things that you do, so listeners out there, Reverend Kimberly is a pastor. She is a lawyer. She is a writer. She is an editor. What, am I missing something on the list? Besides wife and mom. Wife, mom, <laughs> sister, daughter, all the things that we all have. Um, I feel like I'm missing a, a occupation on there. I not think that's it. <laughs> <laughs> How do you balance all of those things, work, starting businesses? Because you have, again, plug the table live. Ooh, Find table it on. Live. SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher. Stitcher, and Google Play, I think. Okay. How do you balance doing that, working, parenting, and your relationship? Well, I, I still think there's anything such thing as a balance. I just think that you have to do what you got to do. Like, mm-hmm. really. I mean, my main priority in life is my child, right? And so when we were talking earlier about you know, your child and your husband being competitors. When my son was born, my husband said, I want you to always make sure he feels like he's number one in your life. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that was very generous of him to say that. I think sometimes he kind of backpedals on it, (laughs) but that is what he's always said. And so I have, that's been our agreement. So um, my number one priority is, is to my child. But, you know, you also get to the point where you're like, okay, I need to have a little bit of life of my own. Mm-hmm. And, of course, you have to work to live. And so I think another thing that you you end up doing is sacrificing sleep mm-hmm. and personal time. Yes. So, I mean, something has to give. And so I just look at it as, you know, I could sleep when I die. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but beyond the necessity. And I just also cut other things out like I don't go out as much right and I was telling my husband the other day I'm like I only have two friends like I don't feel like I have <laughs> as many friends as I used to have so there's certain things that you you do have to cut out and also like I remember before I had my child I would be like I don't understand how people can afford to have children mm-hmm. because I would see like whatever the medium income was and I'd be like I make more than a median household income on my own and I can't afford to have a child. Right. So how can these people afford to have children? And the way they afford to have children, they just don't do a whole bunch of stuff that you do mm-hmm. when you're single. Like they don't go out to eat as often. They're not buying shoes as often. Like it's just your priorities shift and you know what as the Bible says, where your heart is there where your treasure also be. And so um 
It's just cutting out the non-essentials is really what it boils down to. Yeah, and I think that that's hard for some people. Like, I agree. I don't think there's a balance for anything. And what I've always said to people is people are always like, what do you want to be remembered for? What do you want to, like, what's your main thing you want to be known for? And I said, when I die, if people look at that I was a successful wife and mother, then I feel like I've achieved. I think that is the number one priority in my life because I also say I spent, I intentionally spent a lot of time being selfish by having children later. And late is relative. I was 31. But I think I spent a lot of time of being selfish. And I think when you don't have that time is when you feel like you have to sacrifice so much later. And I feel like I don't make a sacrifice for my kids at this point versus I think people that have children younger, you spent, you've been sacrificing forever. Like since you've been an adult, you've been sacrificing. So it's hard when you have reached a point of status and you're like, well, I want to be able to do this or spoil myself. It's different. So I think I agree with you. There's no balance, but I also, I'm like, you do to your point, you sacrifice sleep, you sacrifice time. Like even this project or this podcast for me is I'm doing it with something that I want to do, but I also think that there was a void in the market for it, but I make the time for it. I'm doing this at night or I spend my Saturday or whatever it is, but I always make sure that my kids come first. And I think that is the biggest thing. Like a job is a job. Nobody's working somewhere 20, 30 years anymore and then retiring. You have to figure out what makes you happy. And I think that's what most people try to seek now is the work-life balance and then the happiness factor because you can go to a job every day if you're miserable then your whole life is gonna be miserable right even no matter how much money you make and I think too I mean for me to be honest I think there's something to be said for having your children late it's like I I didn't had every shoe I didn't had every bag (laughs) I didn't traveled around the world Mm -hmm. I didn't drink every wine like I've been done all these things so I've experienced that so I don't feel like that's something that I'm missing. Of course, you still want to maintain a certain quality of life. But the other thing is, I, I think the greatest challenge for me is two things. One is I think just by nature, I'm an intellectual. So mm-hmm. sometimes I want to be like, you need to even go to sleep. I just want to read. Right? right. You know, so I just want to sit down and be able to read and ponder my thoughts. And so guess what? I got to ponder my thoughts in a car. Like mm-hmm. when I'm on the way to do something like that may be somewhere I do. I started listening to more books on tape, which I always right. used to think was dumb, but now I can't read while I'm driving, but I can listen to audiobooks while I'm driving. So I started doing that. And the other challenge for me is that being a pastor and even being an attorney and, you know, being social justice minded, a lot of my call is outside of the home. Mm-hmm. So of course, I want to be a great wife and I want to be a great mom, but a large call in my life is doing things outside of the home. And so I think some of that requires understanding from your family. And mm-hmm. I think it's been harder for my husband than it has been for my son because I'm just kind of raising my son right. to be a part of that. So um, he kind of, he knows, okay, on Wednesday night, mommy's going to the meeting, mm-hmm. which is what he calls Bible study. <laughs> Mom, are we going to the meeting? Or... He'll say, uh, there's some little kids from the neighborhood around church who started coming to Wednesday night Bible study. He's like, mommy, where are your girls? You better call your girls. Why are your girls? <laughs> and I'm like, why did he start calling them my girls? Right. But I guess he just kind of intuitively understands it. So I think that's another part of it. It's like, I think if your children understand your work or understand what your call is and mm-hmm. you raise them to understand it, then they, they, will, they will value it and not feel like they're missing. And then you just... You just make little tweaks. So mm-hmm. 
I was, um, I had started getting up early in the morning because sometimes my son, he just does not want to go to sleep at night. And then if he is going to sleep at night, by that time I'm so tired anyway that I end up, I, mean, I swear I'll be like, okay, I'm going to put him in bed at 830. We're in the bed. I'm putting him in bed at 830 and then I'm sleeping until the rest of the night. And so what I started doing is getting up earlier. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's just, I've never been an early morning person, but I find that if I get up earlier, I'm more productive. And then I actually read an article that was saying people who get up earlier are more productive. Mm-hmm. And that if you try to get up early and get things done, as opposed to staying up late, you end right. up being more productive. So just making small changes. Mm-hmm. Another thing is too, I think people romanticize, Oh, work life balance. And so one thing I even say in ministry when people come and they are saying things like, oh, I don't know what the Lord is calling me to do or why is the Lord doing this? I'm like, okay, first, we cannot we can over romanticize and over theologize things. But the truth of the matter is you have to work to live. Right. Mm-hmm. I don't care what your passion is or what your call is. You got to keep a roof over your head. Yep. You got to pay for lights. You got to pay for water. Mm-hmm. And you might have to be a little bit miserable, but it has to be done. And when you have children... <laughs> It's even more so. And I'm not saying that you have to stay in a right. job that you're going to be miserable in, but you might have to make some short-time sacrifice. Like, no, this might not be my dream life right now, but it's giving me health insurance and providing for my children. Right. And so, and that's a sacrifice within itself. Mm-hmm. Because even when I went to seminary, like when I went back to seminary, I was like, okay, I'm not married. I don't have children. I can make this sacrifice because it's me. Right. But once you have a child who does not ask to be in the equation, you can't be like, oh, we're going to rough it. Yeah. Because they need their life and they want their things and all the... I agree. Like, they didn't... None of these kids asked to be here. They were all choices that we made. So, that's the thing. I think, like, if tomorrow my job went away, I'm going to be in somebody's Target. I'm going to be driving somebody's Uber, doing somebody's Instacart. Like, I can't allow my kids to have to feel the byproduct of my life. There's nothing wrong with in, in any of those places. Like... I want to drive Instacart tomorrow. I'm just waiting for a shift to open. Like (laughs) there's nothing wrong with any of those things, but I think that there's some people who don't pursue things single or unsingle because they feel like they're beneath them. And I'm like, there's for me in the way that my life is set up, there's nothing beneath me. Like whatever I have to account is set up. (laughs) It needs to be money coming in there from somewhere. Correct. Like I don't care where, well, I do care from where from, from legal means. Right. I need to have a source of income, even if it was just me. Like there were times where I was in California and I was in a really bad, depressed place. I didn't have any kids. I didn't have a husband. I didn't have anything. And it's funny because the one thing, not the one thing, but the thing that I think annoys my husband now is I am a shopper and I will buy tons of meat from my freezer. And this came from my father. It annoys him to no end. He'd be like, why do we have all this meat in the house? And that paid off for me when I was in California and I was living by myself. I was super depressed and I seeked help for my depression, but I was not working. And luckily in the state of California, you can use short-term disability for that. It's recognized. And I was like, but I can't be homeless. Like, I have to have something coming from somewhere. Like, so if that, <laughs> right. If, if, if that wasn't a resource for me, then I wouldn't have been able to do that. But I didn't go to the doctor being like, take me off work. I went and like, I just need something to sleep. Mm-hmm. And they were like, well, what's going on? What's this? And I think that's the importance of healthcare. But even as a single person, I was like, I got to make sure this rent's paid. <laughs> 
but you got to make sure these lights stay on. Like I can cut off a phone, a cable, cable. or everything yeah. else, but that's stocking up on food. I'm trying to tell y'all that stock up is real. I ate like squirrel. You squirrel. <laughs> <laughs> I ate for a really long time based on all the things that I had in the freezer. But I was also very blessed that I was I, I became very spiritual. And I won't say religious because I don't think that I'm overly religious now, but I became very spiritual. And I believe in God, but I was like, God's not going to let anything happen, but also like the universe, will, the, it, things will work out. And I remember specifically one Wednesday, and I think I may have been like down to like low or minimal in my stash food. And I was waiting for my like disability check to come or whatever it was. And I went to Bible study on Wednesday and randomly we walked out. They were giving away like fruit and like juice and something else, like just for people to have. And I didn't even know that that happened. And I was like, it's amazing to me the blessings that come to you when you're not looking for them and how God, the universe, whatever you, whatever person you, you believe in, Everything comes when you need it. And I think that that's something that we always don't see when we're going through the struggle of things or like even like when you're you have a small kid and or you're going through trials in your marriage or anything that happens. Like it's always like at that very last moment when you can't possibly think (laughs) that anything else is going to come through that something happens. And I think that shows how resilient we are as people to be able to hold on to something that long to be able to say, okay. I, I'm I'm here and now I can go a little bit longer. Yeah, you know it's interesting that you say that because sometimes what I have to remind myself is that whatever I'm going through, that I, I still need to enjoy what I'm doing mm-hmm. and be present for my child because you never know what's going to be around the bend. And then when you get around the bend and everything works out, you're like, man, I spent all this time being mad and depressed mm-hmm. and frustrated when I could have been enjoying playing with my son. Right. You know, and the other thing is, you know, such a joy having children because it doesn't matter what's going on. Like, they're still going to be them because they don't know. Mm-hmm. And they, as they get older, they become a source of comfort for you. Like, now it's all about, like, mommy, do this, mommy, do that. But there's a woman that I work with, and she recently had a tragedy. Her house caught on fire, and I just felt badly for her because she had so many things that happened. She went through a bad divorce. She lost her company in the divorce. She had to move out of the house. She had to start a new job. And then, you know, her husband wouldn't give her clothes or her furniture. She had to spend all this money, got all this new stuff, and then her house burned down. And what was interesting was that she was going on vacation. And they were like, how are you going on vacation when you started this job? She's like, I put that in my offer. Like, I mm-hmm. need to go on vacation here or I need to start in August. And we were like, where are you going? She's like, I'm going to see my baby in Jacksonville. Right. So her daughter just graduated from college and lives in Jacksonville. And so she had taken this vacation to go see her daughter. Well, then her house caught on fire. And she was like, well, mm. my house caught on fire. She's like, well, I'm still going to go see my daughter. And so I was like texting her like, hey, how you doing? And she's like, I'm feeling badly. I feel like I'm just crawling in a hole. She's like, but I finally got to my baby. And I'm like, you know, your baby mm-hmm. is 23 years old, but it's still like right. with you with your child. It's like everything feels better right you know they are the indeed the light of your life all right so we have now entered our shit shower question segment so 
The first question we will have is, what advice can you give me on how to get my husband to agree with me on my way of disciplining our kids? He is a pushover and considers me too strict, and he does not agree with spanking. So I don't have this experience. Uh, I'm probably the person in my situation who doesn't agree with spanking. Like, I think there's a, a very distinct difference between, like, discipline and spanking and beating. I'm not a proponent of beating. I don't even really spank. I am like a, I'm going to pop your hand just to, to show. And my husband is not a pushover. Now, where we sometimes disagree and clash over discipline is he is very much so a yeller. Stop. Sit down. Plop. Like, he's very much so, like, I'm going to, and like I think I talked about last week, he disciplines through fear. And I try to be, it's not always, I try to be a person who disciplines through showing or showing compassion or all those things. But there are times like yesterday, Preston had a bad day at school. I said, Preston, if you have to listen at school. If you don't listen to school tomorrow, mommy's going to pop you. We went to school this morning. Preston, what are you going to do at school today? I listen. Okay, Preston. Have a good day and listen. When I got to school, I was like, did he listen today? Did He, of course, said yes. And his teacher was like, no, he didn't listen. He just kind of wanted to do what he wanted to do. He didn't want to pick up toys. Correct. But I'm like, there is a level of if I say I'm going to do something, then I have to follow through on that. And so when we got home, we get, when he got in the car, I said, Mommy, Preston, we get home. Mommy's going to pop you. You didn't listen today. Um... And then when we got home, he was, thought it was a joke. Like, he thought it was a game. And then I sat down. I said, Preston, what were you supposed to do today? And he just looked at me like, oh, man, I might really get in trouble now. Yeah, she really about to pop me. <laughs> right. And I popped his hand once because I don't believe in spanking or, like, I don't believe in corporal punishment discipline. And he was upset. And I said, are you going to listen to school tomorrow? You're supposed to listen to your teachers. And his – when he wants to say no or he knows the answer is no, he just won't say anything at all because he's stubborn, and I think that that comes from me. But at the end of that, like, I'm I'm a, I'm a sit on the stairs, stand in the corner. Like, that's what I am because that hurts him. And I was like, please go sit on the stairs. Do not cry, and I want you to think about what you did. And he went and sat down, and he was quiet, and he didn't cry, which normally he has to sit on the steps and cry, and he didn't. And then after two minutes, because I read somewhere that for every year, it's a minute for them to sit down and time out. And he listened, like, for the rest of the afternoon and evening. And we've had a problem listening. Now, whether or not that translates into tomorrow is different versus I think his dad would have had a very different reaction to that situation. So for me, I think it's you have to know what you want and what you're comfortable with and then try to have a conversation with your partner and spouse about why you don't think things are comfortable. Like, our conversations are... You can't yell at him if you're doing that same thing. Like, if you yell at him, that teaches him that yelling is the way you get a response or an answer. And I, so I'm, I try to be very um, careful about when I use discipline or when I use popping. And I think my husband thinks pinching and all that. I'm trying to be very careful because now he does have a younger sibling. And, like, he's popped her hand. And I'm like, Preston, you can't do that. And he'll be like, they'll be playing. He'll be like, Nelby, I pop you. Or Penelope's now favorite word is stop. And I'm like, oh, clearly we just say stop so much. So I think everything is you have to be very cognizant of how you are engaging in what your approach is because what you do is their example of what they will do in life. 
I'm a threatener. And so it's funny that you say that because I always threaten, like, if you don't do it, I'm going to pop you. And then I heard you like, you know, I'm going to pop you. And then I'm like, well, he doesn't hardly ever get popped. But if he goes around saying that, people are going to think he gets popped all the time. Right. But I just say it as a threat. And look, I'm not going to be like I'm perfect because I have popped him before. I've never spanked him, but I have mm-hmm. popped him before. But Charles and I have had disagreements on it because Charles is like, he needs to listen. If he don't listen, you know, he could die. And I'm like, well, it's your job to prevent him from dying. Right. Like, you know what I'm saying? So, like, I'm like, he should never be in a situation when he's about to run out in the street because it's our job to be watching him and make sure he doesn't get to that. So, I am very anti-hitting. Like I said, I'm not perfect, and I have done it before, but I'm very anti-hitting because I feel like you're small, I'm big. <laughs> and, you know, it's very complicated for me. I, I feel like it is a vestige of slave mentality when mm-hmm. you're literally trying to break your, break a slave, and I feel like when you beat your child, you're breaking your spirit because you're they, they start to react to things out of fear. Mm-hmm. And I do, I don't want to take it too far, but I do feel like it, has an impact on the success of African-American people because we teach our children to shut up, sit down, shut up and be quiet. They don't think mm-hmm. out of the box. They don't explore. They don't become as entrepreneurial right. because they're taught to stay within these boundaries. Sure. Yeah. We can say my child is not embarrassing me, but yeah. Are, is it more important for your two year old not to have a tantrum and embarrassing you mm-hmm. or have your 25 year old be, you know, out exploring and thinking outside of the box and being super successful because he right. wasn't taught to be fearful. Uh, the other thing is, I think that we do have to be careful about messaging. And I'll just, I'm, I'm pausing because I'm thinking about a story. Jude and I were at a meeting, and he was sleepy, and I don't know what happened. And I said he couldn't do something, but he smacked the shit out of me <laughs> in public to the point. I was like, <gasps> and everybody in the whole meeting was like, <gasps> and I was like, we got to go. And we got in the car, and I was like, I wanted to beat the hell out of him, but I was like, okay. I had to pause because I'm like, okay, do I really want to beat the hell out of my child? And also, I'm like, what message am I sending him to use violence to say violence is bad? Right. So you just really have to think about the messaging that you're giving your children. And so what I found as he gets older, I can rationalize with him. Like last week, I'm like, okay, you want wild surprise? You have to be good all week. And he's like, it's today I'm going to get it? I'm like, no, Friday. He's like, it's today Friday? I'm like, no, you have two more days. And finally Friday came, and he was like, I was like, well, we, ha- we were doing vacation Bible school. And I'm like, well, you have to be good, and you have to listen. He's like, uh-uh, today's the last day. <laughs> <laughs> he understood. Right, and I'm like, no, but you still don't have it yet. But it's but he under And even now, if he doesn't listen, if we're at home, and I'm like, well, if you want to go watch your tablet, for 10 minutes or whatever, then you need to listen to me where he like, he didn't want to go to sleep. And I'm like, well, do you want a surprise tomorrow? He says, yes, I want trolls. I'm like, well, if you want to get a troll tomorrow, you need to be quiet and go to sleep. Right. And so that works for him. But I find that spanking doesn't work for him because he's mm-hmm. so strong willed. I'm like, I literally feel like when I have popped him, he's like, no, you popped me. And it turns into this thing. Even when Charles has popped him and told him to do something, he still won't do it. So Charles is like, I mean, you literally even not actually made Charles come around. Cause he's like, man, I would really have to, like, beat my child into an oblivion for him to, like, Mm -hmm. buckle to hitting. So I don't want to do that to him. And it's interesting because my mother-in-law said you have to figure out what the one thing is that will make them listen. 
And it's not always a spanking. It's not always a hand. It's not always the same thing for each child. And I think that's the, that's the challenge. You have to figure out what it is. Um, and it's interesting you said the whole slave mentality thing because I brought that up last week about how I don't want, like, there's a whole mentality thing. So the, the, it's interesting. You can tell clearly tell we're raised by the same person um, or people because our thought processes are the same around that type of thing. You were raised by me. <laughs> that would be very true. We're not going to mention anybody's age on here, but that is very true. I was raised by her, so that makes sense of why my brain goes the way that it does. Um, how much time would you set aside as alone time with your spouse for for date nights, et cetera. Okay, I just want to say one more thing with that because I think what your mother-in-law said, I only oh, have one mm-hmm. child, but I do strongly believe that every child is different and yes. what works for one child is not going to work for another child. Like even with our mom, she said she was deathly afraid of getting a beating, so she would do whatever, thing, whatever she had to do mm-hmm. to not get a beating, whereas Angie would be like, I'm going to get beaten anyway, so I'm going to do what the hell I want to do. Right. So it's just like every child is different and you do have to figure out what's going to work yeah. for your child. But... How much time do you spend with your husband? Now, how much time would you set aside as alone time with your spouse for date nights, et cetera? Whenever you can get it. I mean, <laughs> I think that it's hard to get alone time. Number one, first of all, and you notice, my husband is so weird about anybody watching our child. Yes. That I'll be like, oh, let's go do so-and-so. He's like, where's you going to go? I'm like, he's going to go over to my sister's house. Who's over there? Mm-hmm. Is it just her and Deshae? And I'm like, no, so-and-so, well, he can't go. Well, he's not spending the night. Well, we got to go get him right away. So when you throw that in there, it's kind of like, well, all right. You're not going to get as much as alone time. But, um, you know, we went to a concert the other week, and that was nice, especially with my mom being here. It's nice to do it. Yeah. But quite frankly, we are not good examples of it. I mean, we have had – we made a joke – we were in New Orleans and I'm looking around. I'm like, why are we the only pay people with our baby in the French Quarter at midnight? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Um, so we take our child with us on a lot of places. I actually prefer prefer it because then I don't have to worry about him. Right. So, um, but I do think it is important to have some time alone with, with your spouse. But what we end up doing is because we both work flexible schedules. Like a lot of times we'll have like a breakfast date or, or like lunch, yeah. a lunch date. Or, you know, we'll come home and, like, make out in the afternoon or watch a <laughs> television show before it's time to go get Judah. So right. I think you just have to make it work for whatever your schedule and lifestyle is. Mm-hmm. Like, our big thing is both of our kids go to sleep semi-early, like 7, 30, 8 o'clock. So I remember early on when it was like I was exhausted all the time because I often, often, often chose sleep over anything else, mm-hmm. over going out over being intimate, over everything. If sleep was way more important to me because I was like, I'm so exhausted sleep and tired. Everything. <laughs> like, I was like, I just got to go to sleep. But I did, I learned through that, I can't expect my partner to understand that I'm that tired. Like, even if I don't communicate he's it. he's been sleeping. Right, he's sleep. He's been sleeping. He's not having no issues. But if I don't communicate that I'm so exhausted, I can barely keep my eyes open, it's hard. But the other part of that is sometimes now I know there were times where I probably should have chose and sacrificed that sleep for 15 or 20 minutes of a dinner or a drink or those things. And now in retrospect, I think 
once your kids are asleep, you can have a date night at your dinner table or a drink here or listen to music or watch a TV show or do any of those things. So any of those small moments that I think you can capture can be considered that. I think as your children start getting older, like now, and we, we still take our kids a lot of places. They get more and more rowdy as they become toddlers, so it's almost embarrassing. But, like, we've gone to pretty non-family-oriented places, and I'm just like, they too. Like, you can be mad at me if you want. It's like being on a plane. They too, they want to eat too. Like, don't get mad. But now I think it's getting to a point where, okay, if I can have somebody watch them for a little while, because I also don't like them not being home, because if they go somewhere else, then I got to go get them, and then I got to bring them home, and I got to put them back to sleep. It's just too much of a hassle to not have somebody come to your house. And A, I don't, like you, I don't trust a lot of people to watch my kids, specifically at home. Like, our rotation of people are very close family. And, but now I'm like, it doesn't, it's not worth it to have to drive 40 minutes in two directions to go to have a babysitter. So we try to make it around, okay, my father is now staying with us. Once they go to sleep, nothing crazy is going to happen in the middle of the night while they're asleep. So we'll go out after they go to sleep. Or now that our mother is here, hey, can you come over here and watch them? Or can they go over, over to your house and so I think you have to figure out flexible things but knowing it doesn't always mean outside of the house and I think that's the biggest thing that I learned is your your dates can be outside or I mean your dates can be inside like what is a date right a date is any alone and intimate time that you have with your spouse and you have to be flexible what that means it doesn't always mean a movie it doesn't always mean like dinner at a fancy restaurant maybe you look up a recipe and a cookbook or a website and make it. Like I learned how to make ceviche recently. I had no idea that that's something I would learn how to do, but it's those small things you do that show attention to your spouse that make the difference. Cause I think again, like we said earlier, they got a lot going on too that we just don't recognize all the time. And I think when you show that little bit of, cause you're showing your kids so much attention, like they get so much of your daily attention when you say, walk in the house. And you're like, what happened? Right. You know? Like what happened? Did you fall? What's in your mouth? Da, 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 da. Mind you, your daddy could be sitting at the counter right there and could, I don't know what happened, but <laughs> like, you're all right. <laughs> right. Get up, shake it off. Right. Um, I think they, your kids get so much of the attention when you can give them and give them exclusive and only attention, I think that makes the world of difference. Yeah, even if it's like taking a walk, like mm-hmm. before you daycare, like before you go pick your child up from daycare, you know. Yep. It's like little things. Oh, it's the little things. Send a text message. Send it this. Like it's the attention that they want, and the most that's all most men want. They want to know that they are thought of and they are important. So I think that is the biggest thing. And the last question we have is how do you deal with mom guilt? I often feel bad. Nope, not bad. I often feel like a bad mom for putting work first and not having a lot of time to spend with my kids. And I think my response to that would be I put my kids first. Work is important. I try to do work that I have to once they've gone to bed or I try to do the things that I can do after hours once they're asleep. Um, I try to be an active, engaged, present parent. I, there are times when I've had to travel, like the month of Mar- May. <coughs> I was gone probably three weeks of the month <coughs> and felt very bad about it. But I also had to realize 
there are certain sacrifices that I'll make and I can make up for that time when I'm back. Um, but I just try to show them as much attention and love. And that doesn't mean in the form of, of material things. Like I think being present and playing and singing monkeys jumping on the bed or it's hilarious. Did I tell you Preston's favorite song is Shake the Devil Off? Like his favorite, they, my, our kids go to the same school and they go to a Christian school and his favorite song now is Shake the Devil Off. And he'd be like, shake, shake, shake. And it's, it's funny, but that or monkeys jumping on the bed. And I think I'm going to shoot myself if I hear about one more monkey jumping on the bed. Because it goes from five to none real quick. There's no numbers in between because oh. he hasn't captured the counting down part. Okay. But like today on the way home, he was like, mommy, say monkey jumping on the bed. What did the monkey say? So it's interesting how the small things make them happy. And I think if you can capture those moments, those are the things that they remember. Yeah. They don't remember. And I also read this other interesting article about um, uh, um, hair tie on their wrist. So a mom would put like three or four hair ties on her wrist, on one wrist. And every time she would yell at her child, she would move it to the other wrist. And but she would have to do like three or four acts of kindness to get it back onto the other wrist. And I think that's in she basically in the article, she was talking about how it trained her to try not to focus on the negative things, but try to be more loving and giving and caring and positive. And I think that's the thing you have to to train yourself almost because you can get caught up in being frustrated of two kids in a car yelling or them yelling and screaming, mommy, play my song. Mommy, play this. Mommy, play that. Mommy here. Mommy there. Um, stop dumping toys all over the floor. I think if you well, focus. Acting bad. Yes. Acting naughty. Like, <laughs> um, I think something you, at you. <laughs> focus on or you try to, like, no, that's not good. But then also understand that there are times they just want you to be silly. Like, and jump all around. So I think that would be how you can try to avoid having mom guilt. I think a reality is you have to work. There's no question about how you're going to have income coming in your house unless you're fortunate enough to be in a situation or you've made a conscious choice with your partner that you will stay home because it's the best decision for your family. And that comes with its own set of challenges that I can't speak to today, but I will find somebody who can. Um, but I think if you have that mom guilt and you have that work situation, I think the only thing you really can do is try to be as present as possible when you are home. Well, I stayed home with my child for the first seven months, and I was so happy to get back to work. I didn't know what to do. I was like, well, I never thought I would like work. And I, to a certain extent, I feel like work is my personal time, which is weird. Right. But I do understand how you can feel mom guilt. And I think for me in particular, being in professions like law or religion, when you have conferences and you have meetings mm -hmm. and things like that that can take away from your your time with your child or that are after traditional working hours, that can become an issue. I notice that I'm not as involved as in, in many things as I used to be or as that I would like to be because I have to go to swimming lessons on Tuesdays and right. Thursdays or I want to spend time with my child. So I think that dealing with mom guilt, the first thing you have to ask yourself is, is the work I'm doing or the time I'm spending away my child necessity? Mm-hmm. And if it's a necessity, how long is it a necessity? Or are there things that I can do to maybe be able to put my child to bed earlier and do work later or get up earlier before my child is up so that I'm not spending time with her? Because I do notice even now with my mom here, if I do things in the evening, 
if I'm gone too much, he might be fine. But then I start to feel a little weird. Yeah. Like, oh, I feel like it's something missing. And I don't ever want him to feel like um, I'm gone too much. So I think that's the biggest thing you just have to, like, is this a necessity? And how long is this going to be a necessity? If it's like I'm trying to finish a project and it's going to be a short-term thing, it's one thing. But if it's like my job requires that me, I'm away from my child all these hours, all the time, then you might need to reassess your career. Yeah. I, I agree. Well, with that, thank you, Reverend Mom Kimberly. Thank you for having me. And first of all, let me just say, shit, shower, shave. I don't shave because I don't have time to shave. <laughs> shit, sh- and shower, I have to do, but shave, yeah, that's not a necessity. <laughs> well, so again, the premise is these are all things that, that men can do that women cannot without a child present. So. Okay, did I ever tell you the story? The speaking of which. This is so disgusting. I, I was sitting on the toilet, and my son comes in there and is like, wants me to move back so he can sit on the toilet with me. No, but that sounds right because kids always want to be like, in the and bathroom. And he said it like a lot of times. Like he stopped doing it, but he would just be like, I'm using the bathroom. He'd be like, move back so he can sit on the toilet with me. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Not only do you want to be in the bathroom with me, but you want to sit on the toilet with me? <laughs> Again, that reinforces you can't even go to the bathroom by yourself. You can't even sit on the toilet by yourself. No. No. Move over. At all. Um, so, again, thank you for coming and being a guest. I'm sure we will have you on again in the future. And don't forget to check out The Table Live again on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play. One other? Stitcher. Stitcher. Um, or I don't really know what Stitcher is, but it's, it's on there. It's another, <laughs> apparently, podcast listening app. Um if you have any questions or want to submit a question, please submit it to info at shitshowershave.com. That would be shit with a Y, not an I. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and be sure to like us on SoundCloud and follow us and subscribe on iTunes. Leave a comment, share with your friends, and we will see you next week. <laughs>